on this episode of Jeff Does Vegas. The biggest concern I have is actually the track. If the race is not good, the pomp and circumstance will wear off. Because if the race and the track and everything is is basically a yawner, it just is going to lose its steam. Las Vegas. It's more than just a city. It's a feeling. It's that feeling of excitement when you spot the lights of the strip out the airplane window. It's that feeling of awe as you stroll down the boulevard, taking in the sights and sounds. And it's that feeling of satisfaction knowing that you're in the greatest city in the world. Over 42 million people from around the world share that feeling every year. And I'm one of them. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is Jeff Does Vegas. Welcome to episode number 166 of Jeff Does Vegas. Before we get rolling for this episode of the podcast, I just want to thank my guest from the last episode, Sergio Portizan, creator of the website VivaLosValue.com. Sergio joined me to discuss his most recent Vegas vacation. We talked about his hotel experience of staying both on and off the strip, what it's like doing a bachelor party with a bunch of Vegas virgins, and whether or not he noticed the same decrease in value and increase in cost that other people have noticed. We also discussed the epiphany he had on this trip about his gambling habits and the blog post he wrote about it that's garnered a lot of attention. If you haven't checked it out as of yet, you can listen in the archives at jeffdoesvegas.com or search out Trip Report by Proxy with Viva Lost Value on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. We are roughly a month away from Formula One hitting the strip in Las Vegas, and to say it's become a controversial topic would be a massive understatement. You've got the proponents on one side saying the event is going to shine the world's spotlight on Vegas, put global attention on the city, and have huge economic benefits, as it's estimated it will bring in over a billion dollars in revenue to Las Vegas, or about double what the Super Bowl is expected to bring. Then you've got the other side of the argument, the people who absolutely hate this event. They're mad about the construction costs, the traffic backups, the cost of tickets, and what it's doing to attractions and scenery along the Strip as preparations for the race continue. As we get closer to Lights Out, I thought it might be fun to have Todd McCandless from the Park Firm a podcast back on the show for a discussion about the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Todd joined me about a year and a half ago, shortly after the race was officially announced, and we went in-depth with our opinions on the event. But now, with things fully in motion and race weekend quickly approaching, I figured it was time for an update. In addition to discussing all the issues surrounding the big Vegas race, Todd shared his thoughts on the current F1 season. We talked about the dominance of Max Verstappen and the effect that was having on viewership, and whether or not the addition of another American-based team can help re-spark U.S. interest in Formula One. Please enjoy my conversation with Todd McCandless of the Park Ferme podcast. Yeah, I enjoyed our first conversation when it uh, was early days, right, for the Las Vegas Grand Prix announcement. And uh, 
Uh, yeah, a lot of time has passed. A lot of uh, heavy equipment's been rolled out onto the strip, and uh, we're about ready to go. So yeah, it's great to be back. So let's start off by talking about the current F1 season, because it's people who are watching the season and watching this year, I'm sure are, oh, some are enjoying it and some maybe not so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. Let, let's get, I, I want to get your thoughts on, on the F1 season. What do you think so far this year? Well, you know, certainly it's a, it's been a, a dominant performance from Red Bull Max Verstappen, no doubt about that. Um, I, I'm I'm a bit old school, Jeff. I I've been watching Formula One for decades, right? Uh, I started when I was eight or nine years old, and I've watched for decades. I think it's 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 all about managed expectations of what Formula One actually is, and uh, to new fans that have come on board uh, to the sport via maybe Drive to Survive. So Drive to Survive, you know, a, a well-done series. Uh, it it, uh, it was sort of bottled lightning, the perfect storm. You had COVID lockdown. People at home bored, found it on Netflix. It exploded because it's a well-done series. Um, you know, their, their expectations of Formula One are going to be quite a bit different than my expectations, having watched, you know, the death of Senna back to uh, Nikki Lauda to James Hunt, right? So it's going to be markedly different than my uh, my experience or my expectations for Formula One. Um, for them, that drive to survive is very exciting, and it sort of gives the impression that Formula One is sort of a series that on any given Sunday, anyone could win the race, and and they made it super exciting about a battle for 12th position, you know? 12th, 12th position gets you jack squat in Formula One, right? Uh, no points, no nothing. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, and I... And, you know, I've got deference for making an exciting, you know, series about it. I have no issue with that. But um, but you enter the sport as a casual sports fan coming into Formula One. Your expectation is it's riddled with excitement. And this season has not been. This season is has been wholly predictable from the very beginning of just how dominant that Red Bull car was in the early days. You know, winning by 30, 40 seconds over the field uh, is pretty clearly a dominant car. Now, that's closed down over the, the, the season, the balance of the season. Um, but for me, for a veteran F1 fan, um, this is par for the course. And for me, Formula One is is not an any given Sunday series. It's not a spec series. Um, it is a set of irregulations. Millions and millions of dollars are spent by teams to build bespoke cars and chassis and aerodynamics and engines and to compete within this set of regulations. Some teams are going to get it right. And some teams are going to get it wrong. And there's always been that argument between the, the resources, right? So the haves and the have yachts, right? Um, and so there's always that element that the big teams have more resources. Well, now there's a cost cap, new regulation changes. Um, and what you'll see in Formula One is a slower evolution between team to team. And so if you go back 2000 to 2005, Ferrari dominant, right? Renault comes in with Fernando Alonso, unseats Ferrari, does a better job in 2006, right? Then Red Bull comes and Red Bull wins four years on the trot with Sebastian Vettel. Then Mercedes comes in, they buy Braun GP, they come in, they do a fantastic job. 
eight constructors championships in a row, seven drivers championships for Lewis Hamilton. Nobody was complaining back then, but yeah. now everybody's really upset that Max has won his third as compared to eight constructors championships or seven drivers championships. Everybody was fine with that. But now that Max and Red Bull are winning, there's major issues and bemoaning. And I think the reason is, is because back when Mercedes was dominating, uh, the, the sport didn't have all the new fans to it expecting more. And uh, so I think, um, but you know, in answer to your query to make a long story longer, I think the reality <laughs> of it is you have to appreciate what Red Bull, all of the men and women and Milton Keynes, the hard work and the sacrifice that they've made to create a team and a car that is this dominant and this good and then put it in the hands of a driver that is just sublime. Max is driving at a level that only champions achieve. And um, it's it's nothing short of amazing. And this is coming from a Ferrari fan. I'm a Ferrari fan, a long-suffering Ferrari fan. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm elated for Red Bull and their success, just as I was Mercedes, and I just wish it was Ferrari, and hopefully next year it will be. But you, you can't... You can't discount just how good uh, Red Bull has been and what they've done. And Max has already secured the driver's championship. The team secured the constructors. And people say, well, there's no point in watching. But as a longtime Formula One fan, that second place in the drivers and constructors all the way down to 10th, each step of that is worth millions and millions of dollars in prize money. And for those teams now, the majority of their income is coming from that FOM prize money. And so it's critical for them to finish third or fourth or, you know, try to improve even a, a little team like Williams, you know, to get up to six, seventh in the championship. That's a difference between a better wind tunnel, a better, better aerodynamics engineer, a better uh, uh, um, enclave or, or um, um, you know, fabrication tools and, you know, those kind of things. It's huge for teams like that. So there's still a lot to watch uh, Formula One in the balance of the season. And, uh, yeah, I've been excited about it. But, yes, it has been predictable. And uh, and for those that uh, were expecting, uh, you know, uh, anyone to unseat Red Bull, it's not happened yet. It could next year, though. I feel like we really got spoiled in the 2021 season. Mm. I mean, that was really that yeah, was kind yeah. of the first big season after yeah. the drive to survive effect and everybody was watching it and it all came down to that last race and yeah. no Mikey no and that whole yeah. thing it it all came down to that and then yeah. everybody got really excited about wow like you say it was a, as you say this any given yeah. Sunday attitude where right. oh my god you've got Red Bull Mercedes neck and neck and da, 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 yeah. and then into the next season it came and as you say all of a sudden there's Max winning by 30 seconds a yeah. minute like yeah it, it just it really kind of sucked away that excitement the following year for a lot of people yeah it did jeff and i and i think you're spot on i think that's the point is that when you look at 2021 it came down to the last race last corner right um not a formal one seasons are like that most aren't um and but there have been some like that uh down to a point um and so those are the exception not the rule uh, the rule, you know, I think Red Bull's four-year domination, Mercedes uh, is an exception, an eight-year domination. That's that's because the FIA left the regulations pretty set 
for eight years. They typically don't do it that long, uh, but they're really making a point of the hybrid engine and all that kind of thing. So they left that for eight years. Um, you know, Ferrari before that for four years, five years. So that's pretty typical. Um, so, you know, there's been times Fernando Alonso just missed out, uh, Lewis Hamilton won the championship by a point over Felipe Massa, who now is trying to sue Formula One over that ordeal. Uh, that was by a point. So it does happen. Um, it's just not every single year. With Max's, uh, with Max's, um, dominance and with Red mm. Bull's dominance and, and everything, it, it seems like from what I've kind of read, it's maybe causing some issues, with interest in the mm. sport, particularly in the U.S., are you hearing that and sort of seeing that or feeling that at all? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's I think that's a fair statement. Um, I think when you look at uh, the Formula One fan base, I would say that the high water mark for them was 2022. So off of the 2021 excitement that you alluded to, everybody's on board expecting another barn burner for 2022 and it didn't happen. Right. So uh, formula one, social media engagement and growth sort of peaked in 2022 and in 2023. Now it's sort of waned. And there was a report that was just done uh, by, I think a, a group called buzz me. I don't know them, but they were uh, nice enough on LinkedIn and, and they posted the report and it was really them taking a deep dive into the social, uh, social engagement of Formula One. Um, they admit that Formula One is still rapidly growing in followers and that kind of thing. And it's one of the, the fastest growing sports as far as a social media impact or footprint of any other sport. Um, and so that's all good news. But the actual engagement levels have waned quite a bit in 2023. They also did an interesting study on the verbiage, the words being used in association with Formula One. Whereas in 21, 21 and 22, they were like, wow, this is exciting. That was a close race. You know, this is really cool to this is boring. This is predictable. This is, you know, Max wins everything. So the point is that their social media engagement difference in one year went from positive adjectives about the sport to negative. And so I'm sure Formula One's looking at that. They're trying to make a, well, the sun shines, uh, but it is having an impact. And the study laid the, the waning engagement at the foot of uh, Red Bull's dominance. So I think that's a, it's a fair thing. Um, what Formula One does or will do to potentially stave that off, to stop the bleeding, as it were, uh, to triage that, I'm not sure. Because in order to make the series where every car could win on a Sunday and every championship's going to come to the last race, last corner, you'd have to have a full bore Spectres. They might as well just race go-karts. Yeah, you'd almost have to turn it into a, essentially – now I haven't watched NASCAR in a billion years, so I don't know if yeah, it's still like either. this. But you'd almost have to do that whole idea where everybody's racing the same car, everybody's racing the same engines, everybody's doing the same to just make it fair. Because, of course, I always say the running joke is I still – I mean, if you took Max Verstappen and stuck him in the Haas – where would he place? Would he still come out first or would he be a, a back of the pack or a midfield racer? <laughs> yeah, he'd be in the points. Yeah, he's that good. Yeah. Is the 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 ebbing interest, particularly in the US, is that bad news for Formula One and Liberty Media, considering they over the last few years have been making this big push 
in the U.S. to try to increase viewership and, of course, adding a couple of U.S. races with Miami now in its second year, Vegas being in its first year. Is this bad news for them? You know, Jeff, that's a great question. And I think from Formula One, from Liberty Media's standpoint, they are doubling down on U.S. on Formula One's U.S. footprint. Um, I've argued for years now, uh, long before Liberty Media even knew what Formula One was, I, I've argued that this notion of you've got you've got to bring F1 to America, that's wrong. That's completely reverse. You have to take America to F1. And that's kind of what Drive to Survive did. It got viewers steeped in the politics, the personalities, the narratives, the stories. You know, Americans love a great story, either good or bad, but we love a story, right? And that's what DTS did. So Liberty comes in, um, they do DTS, they get this explosive growth. Um you know, look, there's a lot of smart people over at Liberty Media, and I'm not taking anything away from them. They'll know that their engagement's down. They'll know uh, that the the adjectives are, are a little more pejorative than, than they were in 22. They'll want to fix that. Their challenge, Jeff, is that Formula One is the commercial rights holder of F1. The FIA is the regulatory body. And they've got a president that's a bit of a loose cannon. And Stefano Domenicali, the CEO of Formula One Management, and then you've got uh, Mohammed bin Salim, who is the president of the FIA. They're marching to two different drums. And you've got the FIA saying, yep, bring Andretti in. Formula One's like, uh, time out, you know. So the problem for Liberty is in America, this is a huge market for them. It's the biggest consumer market in the world. And for them, it's imperative that Formula One succeed here because they doubled down when they bought Formula One, a traditionally British European sport, and said, no, we really want to grow it in America. So they added the Miami Grand Prix to Austin. They've now added Las Vegas, um, more races in North America, Canada, Mexico. We got Brazil. Um, and so they're trying to really increase that to capitalize on this market. <laughs> Arguably, you and I could talk about tickets prices in Vegas saying they're capitalizing a little too much. Oh, we but, will. Trust me. Yeah, we, we'll get to that. <laughs> but Liberty has to has to take a long look at that. They've got to be careful. They can't if they if they do things that are artificial constructs to the sport, i.e. spec series, changing regulations willy nilly to s- slow down the fast. Team, you know, you got to be careful there because you're going to alienate. Now, they may think they're, that all us old uh, fans are white hairs, but we're not. Um, they've got to be careful. You're going to alienate the, those fans. And what you're left with is newer fans, many of them who might be just casual sports fans. Some of those new fans have jumped, you know, head first and they've become total anoraks. And that's great for the sport, but they've got to be careful with the, the American market because there's too much competition for our eyeballs over here. Too many sports, too many things to distract us and, and, and garner our attention beyond Formula One, which races, what, every fortnight. Um, they're adding more races, I, I understand. But that's going to be a problem for them if their, if their appeal, their brand is starting to wane. They're going to they're gonna have to do something. That means that DTS isn't keeping it all afloat from a brand perspective. Their, their marketing and media in, in, in America isn't overcoming the white noise of general sports uh, uh, marketing and, and entertainment uh, media news. 
Um, so they're going to have to spend some time if they want to retain this market ho- foothold and if they want to keep their foot on the neck of the American market. It's interesting that you bring up the the idea of um, competing with other sports, particularly in the U.S., and, and that's a problem that Las Vegas is having. I mean, Vegas has gone from being – the largest U.S. market without a major sports franchise of any sort to being the smallest U.S. market with multiple sports franchises between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Vegas Raiders. And you've got WNBA and you've got professional soccer and you've got Major League Baseball coming and you've got all of these things coming in. And then you throw in the Super Bowl and you throw in Formula One and all of the sudden it's a, a almost like an oversaturation of events to compete with. And I mean, arguably, Formula One on a global scale is bigger than all of those other sports that I've mentioned. But on a U.S. scale, it's yeah, it's, it's a fraction. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's exactly right. In order to get Formula One to that level, um, I, I don't want to sound nihilistic about it because there are really smart people at Liberty Media. But I think it's going to be really, really tough, maybe possibly impossible to get Formula One at the level of NFL, uh, you know, Major League Baseball, NBA, to get to that level of viewership in the American market. I think it's just going to be really tough. You might say, well, you know, it's kind of newer and we're not used to it. We've been watching baseball our whole lives. Well, wait a minute. Formula One's been in America since cars have been racing. It's been here. You just didn't know it. You know, the, the Indy 500 was a part of the Formula One you know, world championship in the fifties, right? You just didn't know it. In the sixties, the Halcyon, what I would call the Halcyon days for Formula One, it's my favorite era, the late sixties, early seventies. America was in love. These are basically the boomers, but they were in love with the European sports car. You know, they used to go, you know, it was kind of Woodstock, you know, drive upstate New York, camp out, bring tents, make an event. Watkins Glen Formula One race was huge during those, uh, during those years. Uh, Formula One's been here a long time. It's just Americans didn't, didn't maybe know that. Um, so it's not that we haven't been in America long enough. It's just that we haven't done what Liberty Media is trying to do, mm-hmm. which is to really accelerate F1's brand in the American market. And it's, and it's a hard sell. Do you think bringing in Mario Andretti and Cadillac and uh, American names, I mean, Haas is an American based team, but I don't think they get recognized necessarily as an American-based team. I know I really had to think about it for a second, being Mm. Haas is American. But do you think bringing in that level of recognition with Andretti and with Cadillac, is that going to help that? Or again, is it just going to saturate the, the F1 grid or oversaturate the grid? Yeah, that is a great, great question. And I, I, I would say, and I'm not trying to run down the middle of the fence on you here. I think there's probably two ways to look at this. There were a lot of people back in early 2000 saying, oh, you know, you got to take America to F1. And, and I kept saying, no, you, or you got to bring F1 to America. I kept saying, no, you got to take, you know, America to F1. Doesn't work that way. Um, and they said, no, what Formula One really needs to succeed in America is, is an American driver. Okay. I didn't believe that, but that's okay if that's what you believe. So we got Scott Speed. Did that impact on the radar, Formula One and America at all? Not a blip. Not a blip. 
They said, well, it's not just because, Scott, you know, he wasn't a champion. Well, okay. Most drivers aren't Formula One champions. The majority of Formula One drivers ever who have participated aren't champions, okay? So that's easy to say, but they said, well, okay, but what they really need is an American team, like Dan Gurney's uh, American Eagles. Okay, well, we got Haas. Did that change America's did that radically grow America's viewership of Formula One when we got Gene Haas in the sport? No. Um, so if you ask me if I think Andretti Autosport or Andretti Global is going to be a huge impact to American interest in Formula One, I have historic precedents suggest that it won't. All right. However, with all deference to Michael Andretti and, uh, and his father, Mario, those other options, Haas, F1, Scott Speed, uh, Alexander Rossi. Uh, we even have Logan Sargent, a driver for Williams. Has that made a big impact? No, he's scrambling to keep his ride, right? None of that's made an impact. I will say that everybody knows the name Andretti. Everybody around the world. Mario is a Formula One champion. Um, and I'm not implying that he's been living off that, but but he is a, a well-known name in Formula One circles. And Michael Andretti drove for McLaren briefly. And uh, so, and the other thing is they're not going to be coming in. My hunch is if they come in and tool around as the last place team for three or four years, then it's it's a damp squib. It doesn't matter. But Andretti Global, Andretti Autosport, that's a serious racing operation. They know what they're doing over there. It'd be like Penske coming in. Penske knows how to compete at the world stage, and so does Andretti. And I'd argue Chip Ganassi, too. So the fact is that if there was a chance of a team impacting American fans and getting them more heavily leveraged in the sport, it would definitely be Andretti or like a Penske. Yeah. So my jury's out on it, Jeff. I wish I had a better answer for that, but I'm very intrigued to see. And just because the FIA has approved their application, FOM has not approved that. All these headlines flying around last week, Andretti approved to join the grid. No, 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 they're not. The FIA approved their application, but FOM has to vet it. That could go either way. And as you say, I think too, I mean, if they come in and they suck, there's there's no interest there regardless. I mean, and yeah. and that's that applies, I think, to any expansion team or expansion sport anywhere. If the Vegas Golden Knights had gone into the NHL and not gone to the Stanley Cup Finals in their first year, they'd still be a team that would only be half filling the arena with local fans, as the Vegas Raiders are experiencing right now. I'm not a big yeah. NFL football fan, but I read enough headlines to know <laughs> that the Raiders are sucking and and yeah. half of that stadium is full of, of tourist fans. Yeah. So if you had Andretti Motorsports go in and, as you say, maintain a, a bottom-of-the-pack uh season for the first two or three years, it's going to be a completely moot point of them being there regardless of of what their sponsorship is or who makes their engines or or who's running that team or driving. It's so true. And you know, I don't I don't mean this to be nationalistic, but you know, there's just a difference between the American sports fan and the British sports fan or the French sports fan or the German pick a pick a nation. Doesn't matter. Brazilian race fan. Um, they're just different 
in their fan and how they consume the sport, what they're willing to do to invest in the sport, um, how, how much emotional capital they're willing to invest in the sport. The American fan is just different. I'm not saying it's better, worse, or anything. My gosh, look at the British Grand Prix. Nobody does the British or Formula One like the British fans um, or Japanese or anyone else. So I think it's just a different fan base that has a different consumer relationship with the sport that they choose to invest emotional capital in and how to appeal to that for better or worse in America tends to be, we like to see a winner. (laughs) And if, if Andretti's not, if they're going to run to the back of the grid, I'm done. I don't care. You know, there are people who are Kevin Magnuson fans and um, Nico Hulkenberg fans. And, and, you know, there, there are drivers, Esteban Ocon, and I'm thinking of all the guys running at the bottom of the grid there. I'm thinking those guys, their fans are, are loyal, loyal fans, but it feels like, as you say, the American fan or even the the Canadian fan, when it comes to something that they are maybe casually interested in, like Formula One, they want to be invested in the winner. That being said, when you look at at Canadian hockey fans, for example, the Toronto Maple Leafs, this is a team that has been terrible for year after year after year after year and just continues to break the hearts of their fans but is one of the most highly valued sports franchises in the world. So there are those loyal fans, but as you say, they want a winner. They do. And I think, I think a a good example that would be, I remember. So (laughs) with all the best will in the world, America hasn't always been the biggest football fan. I mean, not American football. I'm talking about soccer, uh, uh, British uh, football, the rest of the world football. Right. Yeah. And, we, we we were we were late to the dance on that. Now there's diehards out there. No, I've been watching since '58, and I get it, dude. It was you and about two other dudes, right? Um, but the reality of it is, is that that sport has grown. And I remember in the late '90s, well, it was the Beckham effect, right? I remember the late '90s, early 2000s. I here in St. Louis, Missouri, you go around, you you couldn't shake a stick without hitting a Manchester United fan. Why was it? Everybody in America I knew was a Manchester United fan, right? And, and why? Because they were getting attached to the sport. They were falling in love with the beautiful game, right? And the winner was Manchester United. And that's who they liked. And that, uh, you know, it's just kind of indicative of when you're going to attach yourself to a sport, you're kind of you're gravitating. I was born and raised in Kansas City, so I have been a long-suffering Kansas City Chiefs fan my entire life. Even living in St. Louis, the Rams, I couldn't care less about the Rams. It was Chiefs. And they were miserable for decades, right? Yeah. And uh, now that they've won three Super Bowls, it's amazing to go around and find all of these NFL fans, young NFL fans, and they love the Chiefs, you know? It's because they're winning, you know? I took a lot of crap from people for being a Vegas Golden Knights bandwagon <laughs> jumper when yeah. they won the Stanley Cup this year. And I had right. to explain to them, listen, I owned a T-shirt before the team had even signed a player. So yeah. I am not a wagon jumper <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Let's talk Vegas. Hey, should we talk about Vegas, baby? Vegas! Yes, let's <laughs> talk about Vegas. <laughs> we are uh, about a month to lights out in Las yeah. Vegas. Um, is the F1 community getting excited about Las Vegas? Are you getting excited about this race? 
<laughs> That's you put me on the spot, man. Um, <laughs> the F1 community is excited about Vegas. The F1 pundits and the side, the paddock, the drivers, the teams, very excited about Vegas. Uh, Liberty Media, really excited about Vegas. Um, am I excited about Vegas? Uh, my jury's out. I don't tend to, and this is just a me thing. Uh, I think traditionally, I think most F1 fans are really excited about it. Um, hardcore F1 fans probably cautiously optimistic because they're looking at the track layout and it's not that exciting uh, on a map. Um, it could turn out to be a, a, a fantastic track. We just don't know. But it, on a map, it doesn't look that exciting. Um, I tend to not get too excited about new races, new tracks. Um, but then I'm, I'm one of those, you know, fuddy-duddy Luddite purists in Formula One. Um, I'm not, you know, there was so much hype about Miami. You know, this is awesome. This is going to be incredible. You know, second race in America. This is going to be so cool. It's a Miami, it's a Dolphin Stadium. And, Oh my gosh, this is going to be so over the top and it's going to be incredible. And we're going to have, you know, 30,000 celebrities in the paddock and just open it up where it's a sea of biomass humanity and all that. And they did all that. And the whole time I'm thinking, let's be realistic. This is a race in the parking lot with fake boats. Folks, let's just be realistic. What we're really watching here, all right? Yeah. It's a race in the parking lot with fake boats and water. And you, if you're willing to suspend disbelief and get totally excited about that, I'm all for that. You know, congratulations. I'm happy for you. For me, it's about the racing, it's about the track, it's about the safety of the track. It's, you know, I've seen too many tracks. So I'm not a big fan of those things that to me are more marketing and, and entertainment than it is racing. For me, Austin is a proper racetrack. That's a real racetrack. And um, Miami is different. Um, Elkhart Lake, one of my favorite in America, that's a real racetrack. Uh, Petite, uh, Red Atlanta. But for me, Vegas is a street course. It's not a real racetrack, a bespoke, purpose-built racetrack like Austin. So it's a street course. So you have Monaco, Singapore, Saudi Arabia. There's other street tracks you can look at as markers to how exciting this race. And so it will be compared to Singapore, Saudi, and those uh, Baku and those other street courses on its efficacy. Uh, there's no doubt it will be over the top in its pomp and circumstances. Vegas, right? Yeah. Um, so that it will be. So I think all of the players, the stakeholders from the teams, drivers and formula one, they're all in and they're super excited. I think most fans are, are really excited about Vegas and having three races. So they're really excited. Um, I'm, my jury's a little out. I don't know. I'll, I'll see what I think after the first race. I know they've tweaked the course a little bit mm. uh, since you and I spoke last. In the initial release, they added a chicane in around the sphere yes. zone in that turn, which, by the way, I have driven the track on F123 on my PlayStation in my basement. I live streamed it. I was terrible at it. Um, <laughs> 
that that chicane by the sphere catches me out every single yeah. time. I know it's coming, and I come around the turn. And I go, oh yeah. shit, there it is, and I inevitably end up in the runoff zone. Yeah, it's kind of a blind uh, left hander, isn't it? Around the yeah, you yeah. come around the turn, and yeah. all of a sudden it's like, oh shit, yeah. it's right there, and there it is. <laughs> so yeah. they have tweaked the track a little bit. I think it is going to be an interesting race to watch. I think mm-hmm. it's going to be fun, and as you say, it's going to be fun for not the right reasons necessarily it is building itself up to be this massive influencers paradise even more so than Miami was and i mean as you say that first year of Miami and even the second year of Miami was was built up but we're going to have all these mm. celebrities and we're going to have all these famous people and i mean this year they did that ridiculous driver entrance thing at Miami which i mean i watched i didn't watch it on the day of, I watched it afterwards when the videos started showing up on YouTube and they had Will I Am from the Black Eyed Peas and some <laughs> symphony orchestra singing and doing a rap and guys coming out. And you could tell even the drivers were walking out going, this is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen and been involved in in my entire life. Um, Vegas, I feel like they're going to be Cirque du Soleil-ing those guys off yeah. of the top of the Eiffel Tower or something yeah. ridiculous like that. Thoughts on the start time on this race? It, it's it's a late start. All of the qualifying and all of the practice for the most part is all being done late, late at night. And the race is a, a 10 p.m. Uh, Pacific time start. I know there's been concerns, some concerns brought up in the F1 media already about um, the effect that the time because of the temperature is going to have on tires and cars. Because I think w- this is going to be my favorite part of this race is watching people rolling into Vegas for a race in November at 10 o'clock at night wearing shorts and flip-flops because they think, oh, it's the desert. It's going to be warm. It's not going to be warm, folks. So there is going to be some some concern, I think, about that. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree. I was I was thinking the same thing. There's going to be all these people showing up in light summer cottons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a desert at night uh, in November. That's going to be cold. Uh, and, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I think um, for... A lot of people, I think they're 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 going into it um, looking at the starting time. I, I think the starting time in if you take a, a global perspective of it, it's great for the rest of the world. Yeah, it's not really good for America. No, <laughs> and that's the irony in all of this. It's like we've got three races in America, and we're going to Vegas, baby. It's awesome, and the people on the East Coast better stay up till two and three a.m. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Yeah. Time out. I thought this is an American race. Why, you know, well, we're doing it late so the rest of the world can see it. Well, I know, but it's an American race. You don't change the race in, in, you know, Japan or Singapore so I can watch it at noon like I normally watch it over, you know. <laughs> they, they've never concerned themselves about the American fan and when we might have to rise to watch a Formula One. It is always centered on GMT in London, and that's the time and target that they're trying to go for. And so to do it at an evening race at five o'clock or four, whatever it was, would have been super late in the UK. So they're going to wait till late. And and now the, our British listeners uh, are going to have to wake up early like American listeners traditionally do. And usually when that happens, 
I love I love the British. I'm in a huge Anglophile, and they're over there with their coffee, their tea, bitching on social media about having to get up early. It was like, <laughs> dude, this is our lives over here in America, you know? And uh, so, yeah, it is kind of weird. I, I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I understand it's a night race, but I wish it would have been a little earlier so the people on the East Coast could watch it. I know they want the night race because they obviously want the Vegas lights. They want the the strip. But I mean, again, let's face it. It's November. The sun sets at by seven o'clock in the evening or yeah, seven or seven 30 in the evening, that time of the year, they very easily could have done a, an an 8 PM race. But as you say, then all of the sudden you've got the people in in Europe waking up at four o'clock in the morning to watch races as you and I have to do if we want to watch them live here in North America. Yeah, so Americans are like, well, boo-hoo, you know, (laughs) Europeans have to get up early. Here's the world's tiniest violin for you playing just for you guys having to wake up to drink your tea. Yeah, I'm so sad you got to get up at 5 a.m. But, you know, that's that's every weekend for us. Um, No, it is. And, you know, you could have even done a race that uh, there's a couple of is it uh, is it Bahrain or whatever the race is that's sort of a sunset into night? So it starts when the sun is setting and then it goes into nighttime. And you could have done that too and got a little bit of the you know the golden hour in Vegas, which is kind of pretty with the sun setting, the desert and shining off the the buildings around Vegas. It's always really pretty and and you see the lights get brighter and brighter, right? And the and the sphere is a you know mind boggling uh, visual. Um, so that might have been fun, uh, but anyway, yeah, it's unfortunate. A lot of controversy surrounding this race um, on the political level, on the city level, on the tourist level. Lots of negative reaction from uh, locals and tourists alike. There's almost like this Venn diagram of reasons that they're angry (laughs) that F1 is coming, where the the locals have got the construction chaos and the traffic issues and whether or not they're going to be able to get to work and the taxpayer money that's being used. And then the the tourists have got the circle where it's like, well, all the room rates are through the roof and you can't access the attractions on the strip and the, they cut down all the trees at the Bellagio and they've, they've, they've closed off the, the Mirage Volcano and all these kinds of things. And then there's this middle part where it's like nobody can get anywhere in the city. Um, <laughs> does, does all this negativity about the event, does it surprise you? Um no, um, I have a very dear friend um, who lives in Vegas, has uh, forever. Uh, he knows Clark County really well. And uh, he is a super good guy. His name is Jack, and he's a dear friend of mine. And uh, I love Jack. And so I reached out to him to, to periodically, and I reached out today just to get an update and insight for Boots on Ground and what the locals are thinking. Uh, and Jack is always – a He's one of the most sensible, level-headed guys, you know, I know. And and uh, so I knew he'd have a measured view of it. And his point is, you know, look, yeah, the construction's a pain in the butt. It's hard to get around. And, you know, you got to take alternate routes. And he said, you know, people are upset about taking the palm trees. He said, you know, look, I, you know, the palm trees is part of a grass family. The, the bigger they get, the more expensive they are. And they add no shade, you know. And so he was like, you know, the people are in California may be upset about it. But, you know, we can put them back or whatever. Um, he was like, you know, it's um, – he says, uh, in his opinion – the benefits, if you want to be big, you think big. 
is what he said. And Vegas, if they want to be big, they need to think big. And this is part of it. And he thinks that in the end, what the impact is to the city, all of this will sort of fall to the side. Um, I think I remember reading, Jeff, and you probably know better than I would, but um, I think Formula One or the city had estimated the financial impact of the city of around $1.2 billion, I think, uh, into the economy, uh, local economy. Um, I'm sure uh, that uh, Clark County uh, would be very pleased with that um, and all the hotels and casinos. So that's one side of it. The other thing I will tell you is, is that this is the first year they're trying to configure a street circuit in a city that's never had one. So you're trying to quasi build repeatable infrastructure that can be built up and tore down. Monaco, by example, that's a well-oiled machine. You know, they can set that town up for that race in no time. Even like Saudi and Singapore, Singapore is a well-oiled machine now. Um, so those things will in time become less invasive on the locals um, because they'll get faster at it. They'll learn their lessons. They may move some grandstands. There may be areas in this first year that didn't really work the way they wanted to, so they won't do that there. They may move things. So this is a first-year heartburn thing, and I think it's it's creating a lot of havoc because everyone's kind of trying to figure it out. But once you get a cadence going forward, this will be smoother and smoother and smoother in time. They'll have a better idea of how long it actually does take them to erect grandstands at this place, you know? Um, and so anyway, I think it'll get better in time. And I think you're right. I think that's kind of been the big concern that, that I've even read on a lot of the different Vegas Facebook pages and social media that I see is all of these, the people that are saying, we're going to go through this shit every single year. And I mean, they're looking at it going, and I've tried to sort of say, and I mean, you know, you know, social media, you can't argue with people on the internet. It's pointless. No. Um, but you try to sort of say to these people, well, okay, this year they had to tear down the streets. They had to dig down the actual streets, the 36 inches or whatever it was to then build up the base layer that they needed for the actual track surface and then lay the new track surface and go through all of that. And that was a huge project. They started that in March. I mean, yeah. as I was telling you before we started here today, I was in Vegas back in May and I got caught up in F1 traffic and it was a nightmare to get yeah. around anywhere. So I think a lot of people are looking at this and going, Oh, I go through all this garbage every year and months. It's been, you know, six months of, of BS for three days of racing and blah, 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 blah. And again, I think people are really kind of concerned that, yeah, this is going to be every year. And as I say, and as you've said, it's, it's not the other cities that do this run it like a well-oiled machine. They do. And I think you get better and you learn a lot that first year. Um, and, you know, even Austin, which is a, a purpose-built racetrack, they had to learn a lot that first year on traffic management and, and busing people in and parking and fields and mud and, and all of the stuff that, you know, they, they took a lot of incoming fire on that first year and a lot of lessons learned. So I think Vegas will learn a lot of lessons, a lot of smart people out there. They'll figure it out. Um, even building up the grandstands and the anchoring points that you need in the concrete to build these grandstands, those will be there next year. So we're not having to drill those out and pour concrete and all that crap. 
crap. You know, those will be there. The track will, will have been laid. If there's any touch-ups or resurfacing, they can do that. But it's not like every year they're ripping up 36 inches of the strip. Um, and so I think that all of that uh, is just economies of scale. And as time goes on, uh, yeah, I think I think it'll be easier. It won't be absolutely disruption-free. Sure. But it won't be as egregious, I think, as this first year. We talked about the the consumerism level of it earlier here and the ticket prices. And, mm. and I mean, I've had package offers emailed to me. I don't know who they think I am because some of the packages that have been said to me is, here's a $15,000 per person package to watch it from Club SI uh, yeah. overlooking the track with Shaquille O'Neal and David Beckham hosting your <laughs> event. And I'm looking going, I I gambled like six hundred dollars with caesars last year that who do you who am i why am i getting this um do these ticket prices vegas being vegas and formula one being formula one does did any of this surprise you i mean we talked about this a year and a half ago and i think we both said yeah they're going to be stupid expensive yeah any any shock at all here um other than sticker shock yeah true true (laughs) Yeah, I'm kind of in two of two thoughts here. Um, yeah, I do think the prices are too high for sure. Um, I think even if you were trying to sneak into town with a three day general admission ticket, you wouldn't get out of that city in uh, anything under a thousand dollars per person, and that that doesn't count travel. Um, so that's general admission. And then it gets up to eleven, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars, right? Um, it gets stupid money. Grandstands for two thousand dollars, you know, uh, three thousand, four thousand dollars. Um, sort of VIP, sort of areas where you can go to a club or whatever and watch it from there for eleven thousand dollars. I mean, that's that's just, you know, I don't know. That's just stupid money to me. Um, yeah. So on one side, I think. This is sanctioned by Liberty Media. It's one of the very few races that the actual Formula One owners are hosting and sanctioning, right? So they don't have to pay themselves the $25 million sanctioning fee because they're doing it all. But the on one hand, you're bringing a race to America. It's America. You said you're going to come to America. We're going to embrace America. It's all about America. Bring in Formula One, and this would be great. And then you have, you know, $3,000 ticket prices. What are you doing? You know, why, why wouldn't you have made the ticket prices affordable so all the Americans could come, as many as you could get, to really, you know, get America excited and, and that kind of thing. Why all of a sudden did it become a VIP event uh, for only the people that are well healed that can afford to go, right? That's one side of the coin. The other side of that coin is it can't be cheap to shut down the strip <laughs> in Las Vegas, right? And I'll guarantee you Liberty Media is paying a pretty penny for the privilege, and I'm sure every single one of those casinos were, you know, uh, upset and ripping robes and gnashing teeth about shutting down uh, the strip for this amount of time because that impacts their traffic, right? So Formula One would counter and say, yeah, but we're going to bring, you know, thousands and thousands of people in. Uh, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. So I think it's cost a lot of money to do what Liberty Media is doing in Vegas, 
And so that has to be recouped somewhere and it's probably in the, in the fashion or in the form of a, of a ticket price. So I kind of see both sides of that coin, but in answer to your query, no, I didn't buy tickets and I'm not going. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, F1 and Liberty Media did pull the, the we're going to charge all of the venues along the strip a fee. Oh, the privilege. Um, yeah. The privilege fee at one point where it was, it was I think it was $1,500 per person up to the maximum capacity. Mm. And they figured out like a, a venue that held a thousand people, it was going to be a one and a half million dollar cost. That yeah. these places were going to have to pay. And if they didn't pay it, Formula One said, oh, we're going to put up fences and we're going to build a grandstand right in front of your venue. Did that go through? Apparently, my understanding was F1 backed off a little bit and said, "Okay, we're just going to charge you a flat rate fee of whatever it was. I can't remember. But they did back off after there was such a, a huge uproar about this from these different restaurants. There was one restaurant, the park MGM that said they were going to have to, they were charging this fee for uh, their restaurant on race weekend as a viewing fee, blah, blah, blah. And somebody rightly pointed out and said, you are located in the basement. You don't even have televisions in your facility and you want to charge a minimum of $150 per person to be in the restaurant on race weekend. Like, I think there's greed on on oh, yeah. every side of this. And I know the hotels are now starting to get a little bit burned on the room rates. I'm seeing the room rates dropping pretty significantly. Mm. You can get into the Flamingo on race weekend in one of their basic fab rooms, as they call it, for $150 a night. Whereas at the beginning, those rooms were five or $600 a night. Now, that being said, that's not going to guarantee you're going to get a room that faces out onto Vegas Boulevard or, or whatever. And also with the accessibility to the strip, that's not even a guarantee you're going to get to your damned hotel, yeah, quite right, frankly, based right, on how right. accessible things are. But yeah. I mean, you know better than I would on this. Comparing ticket prices in other places compared to Las Vegas, can you ballpark it as far as an estimate in price difference or percentage difference? I mean, is it's a significant amount, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's quite a bit more. Um, I was trying to think, and I sh- and I should have looked before I jumped on the call just to compare. I think Monaco is pretty it's pretty pricey. Singapore, I think, is pretty pricey. Um, you know, the high profile races. Uh, are pretty pricey. Uh, Austin's less expensive. Miami's pretty pricey. Um, but I think, I th- boy, I could be off on this. I think Vegas was kind of the one of the more expensive ones I've seen. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, you know, these these revenue streams. You know, Liberty Media is going to look at this and have meaningful conversations, like you said, you know, with the hotels. Uh, the hotels will be complaining that they're tearing up the strip and cutting down uh, foot traffic. On the flip side, from Owen saying that's premium real estate for our show, and you got to pay up, suckers. So this is going to be trying to squeeze millions out of the Vegas, you know, the actual uh, businesses up and down the strip and around uh, because of their strategic location, which I'm sure they didn't choose. And so, or maybe some did uh, to, to be there. But yeah, I think it is super expensive. And I also think, you know, it's always about following the money. And and if there's a way people can, of the $1.2 billion, every single business restaurant sidewalk hustler is trying to figure out how much of that $1.2 billion can I get? 
Well, and Formula One's going to have a presence in Las Vegas year round too. They've built the the paddock. Mm-hmm. They've built that that purpose built facility just off the strip that they've said is going to be a, a year round F one attraction. I'd like to see them do something yeah. like they've done in London with that F one arcade. Yeah, that, yeah, that place is on my bucket list of of places to go. So if they could do something like that mm. in Vegas, which it would make perfect sense if they did, they're going to have that year round presence in the stri- in in the city, which hopefully maybe will give a little bit of goodwill towards the people in Las Vegas. I know they failed miserably with their attempt at offering tickets to locals here this last week. What was that? Like 200 bucks for a single day ticket, but was that just for practice? It was for the Thursday practice session. That was it. The other ticket prices were up into the thirteen and fourteen hundred dollar mark, and people looked and went, "You're killing us here!" No. Like you're. You, I have friends that work in Las Vegas as performers who are not working that weekend, race weekend, because they can't physically get to where they're working on that weekend. They've been given the weekend off, which means they're not getting paid for that weekend yeah. of, of what would normally be a weekend of work. So it, it's kind of like F1 saying, listen, we know you can't get paid, but hey, do you want to buy a ticket for a one-day practice event that's going to cost you this? And you, we, yeah, they, they failed somewhat miserably You can there. go watch two hours <laughs> of practice on a Thursday for 200 bucks. That's 100 bucks an hour. And I even feel too, like Formula One, they're definitely taking advantage of the Vegas thing I looked at the, they do the, uh, the own the checkered flag for all the races where you can get your name and a message on the checkered flag that's waved at the, at the race. And I've often thought, like I've looked at it and thought, you know what, that would be a cool thing to, to do. Right. And the previous races, I looked at Montreal Canadian Grand Prix. I thought that would be fun. It was like $450 to get. And I thought I'd be really cool. Vegas was like (laughs) $1,800 to get a square on the checkered flag. And I looked and went, no, I'll do it maybe next year yeah. if it goes down in price. Maybe next yeah. year. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so overall, in your opinion, this is going to be good for Vegas. Is it going to be good for F1? Yeah, yeah, I think so, Jeff. I think it'll be good for Vegas in the long run. Um, they got to deliver on the headcount. Um, and as long as Formula One feels comfortable, they're going to be able to deliver uh, 100,000, 200,000 or more uh, over a race weekend. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's good. Um, you know, if you could bring 150,000, 200,000 people or more, uh, to Vegas over a three day period, that's great for Vegas. That's a lot of, of, uh, discretionary income that's going to be spent gambling, alcohol, parties, events. Um, yeah, it, it'll be good for Vegas in the long run. I think, um, the, the biggest concern I have is actually the track. If the race is not good, the pomp and circumstance will wear off because if the race and the track and everything is, is basically a yawner, it just is going to lose its steam. I don't, I also don't think that those prices are sustainable um, in the long run. If, when I go back and think about Austin, when Austin came on board, I could buy a general admission ticket for the weekend for 99 bucks and the best place to sit at Austin is anywhere between turns six through 11, those S's, because that's where you really see a Formula One car do what it is designed to do. And so I could sit on the grassy hill out there and watch that for 99 bucks. Um, then when DTS came out, Austin, Bobby, bless his heart over there. I do the same, Bobby. Uh, he increased prices and took advantage of the, the, the excitement about Formula One, as you do. 
but he actually increased it uh, to take advantage of it. I'm not sure how sustainable Vegas or Miami would be in the long run as, as things start to balance out. And it'll be interesting to see, but it'll be good for Vegas for, you know, the initial uh, few races. I would love to know in the end how many of those $5 million win packages, or I think the $5 million was the Caesars package. <laughs> um, Cause that was the one where you stayed at the Nobu and you had the chef no, Nobu Nobuashi or whoever yeah. come and cook dinner for you. And you had, it was 12 people that got to go to Adele and you got all the, all the I would love to know in the end, how many of those packages actually sold if they sold if they sold more than one i'm impressed if they sold one i'm impressed quite right well they were pricey so i could only get two of them but uh (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah it's crazy isn't it yeah it's just um it'll be interesting to see i think even miami after that first year when they went all in over the top and it was just crazy and i think the second year they kind of kind of pumped the brakes a little bit on it, kind of pulled it back a little bit, toned it down a little bit. I suspect eventually Las Vegas will find its, you know, happy spot. Ticket prices will probably come down uh, over time. I don't know that it's sustainable where it's at now, uh, but they, they're going to capitalize on the initial first inaugural race and, and they're going to capitalize on that. But I think in, in, in the long run, it'll be good for Vegas. Todd, I appreciate you taking the time jumping on I, I love chatting f1 and i love chatting f1 with you we need to do this more often actually yeah, i think yeah we do well it's the honor <laughs> is always mine jeff it's been great to come on and thanks so much for your kind consideration of me and the park for me excellent todd thank you again you bet thanks so much And that wraps up another episode of Jeff Does Vegas. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show, or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. Or drop me an email directly at Jeff at JeffDoesVegas.com. In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit JeffDoesVegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been Jeff Does Vegas, a Walker New Media production.